get awkward. <laughs> Perfect. Perhaps to his credit, Jim eludes any neat or simple categorization. Even as a good friend of his, it would be difficult, or perhaps more accurately, it would be misleading to simply describe his resume. His interests in real estate and policy, his experience at Wharton, his short tenure at Goldman Sachs, or his time spent as a CEO of a healthcare startup, these things may come up. But again, to his credit, however, he's perfectly capable and in fact likely to talk for hours without even once alluding to his formal accolades. Jim possesses the rare ability to remain alarmingly focused and objective, no pressure, and unlike me, he's concise. He prides himself, and deservedly so, on his unique ability to solve problems and to bring people together to help them reach consensus on complex issues. And it is for all these reasons and so many more that I always look forward to our conversations. Jim, as always, thanks for wasting your time with me. Wow, Kevin, what a glowing and undeserved uh, introduction. Thank you very much. (laughs) Uh, And to prove my point of being unconcise, Yes. My first question will take approximately two minutes to ask. <laughs> Perfect. I'll go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Frost, in his introduction to his collected works, describes the difference between artists and scholars. I think I might have mentioned this dichotomy to you before. Mm-hmm. He says both artists and scholars achieve or strive towards knowledge and understanding and that they differ only in their pursuit of that knowledge. Scholars, on the one hand, pursue knowledge in straight lines through deliberate trajectories. They have something they want to learn. They schedule out the books they're going to read, the classes they're going to take, etc., etc. Artists, on the other hand, he says, obtain knowledge like a hiker walking through a tall field who collects on his shoes and his pant legs, burrs, that he may not even notice until he is finally through that field, and maybe not even then. He lets stick to him what sticks to him, and is all the richer for it. Both, in the end, achieve the same thing, though. Understanding. I guess, using that definition, I I wonder first how you might compare that analogy to your own educational history, and second, I'm always interested in knowing this. What have you been learning purposefully? Uh, as opposed to what you've been learning also at the same time accidentally or through, you know, serendipity? Wow. Great question, Kevin. I feel like that's uh, 10 questions wrapped in one. (laughs) (laughs) So the scholar and the artist. And so so the scholar sets out with deliberate focus, at least a goal in mind and, uh, and a plan in mind. Whereas the hiker may have a destination, a mountaintop, but the path is unknown. And, uh, and as you know, as you just said, with the, the spurs on their pant legs, it's, uh, the lessons are sometimes not as obvious or not as apparent. <clears throat> I, uh, I love that distinction. And, uh, in terms of my own learning, well, in terms of my schooling, I, uh, fr- well, frankly, I would say most of my education occurs outside of schooling. So yes, I have degrees that from good schools and uh and i learned a lot while there met a lot of great people but even while i was there and more so since leaving those schools i would say most of my pursuit of knowledge has been self-directed um and in 
terms of what I seek out to learn, I would say it's often, it's, it's derived by asking questions and then pursuing the answers to those questions. Um, in, uh, in many ways, I feel like I'm uh, like that kid, you know, kid, kids when they're small, they'll ask why and why and why incessantly. And, uh, and I, I think parents will, you know, good parents will uh, respond enthusiastically, you know, for a couple whys, but eventually they'll say it's just because, or, or they'll give some, some answer that'll kind of end the, the current string of whys. And I, and I feel like in many ways, I've just never stopped asking why to myself and pursuing that. Um, so I very much feel like my learning journey is indefinite and continues to, to this day. Um, in terms of what I've been learning recently, um, I'm an entrepreneur, a, uh, a struggling entrepreneur of sorts. And so I've been exploring job opportunities and looking forward to, you know, looking taking a macro landscape perspective and assessing where things are going to be going and how do I want to be positioning myself to those. And, uh, and I would say, so in terms of where I'm deliberately putting my attention, I would say towards that, thinking about the future, thinking about technology, thinking about the economy, thinking about culture and society. And we, you know, we can dig into all those topics. So I would say that's kind of where I'm, I'm deliberately trying to learn. I would say where I'm, accidentally or happenstance or you know with, without as much focused learning is i would say with myself you know i i uh i i try to be self-aware and i'm always trying to better myself but at the same time i feel like the the most unexpected um gains or the, the biggest aha moments are when um i i discover something about myself and it's often when i uh realized that I was wrong about something and uh, and you know I, I think um, one of my strengths is my confidence and I would think one of my weaknesses is my overconfidence mm. and uh, and uh, and so the, 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 the most surprising learnings come from uh, you know seeing a better reflection of myself hmm. uh, in a couple questions I I ended up changing it, but I did. I had. I have an original uh, version of a question that had to do with with your confidence, which is interesting. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> um, I, I've recycled also this one. I think you've heard this one before, but it, it, it would be continually generating if I asked it every time. Um, yeah, of course. And and I'm hoping actually if I can steer you, and you can tell me if you, you don't want to go in this direction. But you named a bunch of the things that you have been pursuing purposefully. I want to sort of um, layer this second question on top of those those categories that you mentioned. Okay. Uh, Carl Jung, and I'm, and I'm sort of paraphrasing here, he says something like, some people have ideas and, and some ideas have people. Uh, and I think in some ways my interpretation of that initially is always sort of of a warning. But then I'm always reminded how exciting it is to be gripped by a thing, to, to, to think less about how much time it costs or how much money it costs um, or how much time it takes, rather, and, and to sort of just be totally hooked um, and sort of enraptured in, in by something. 
Um, so I, I assume, of course, there's a there's a warning there, um, but there's also an invitation to sort of be really excited about an idea, and as long as you're cautious, like kind of letting that take you places. Um, I'm curious, what ideas have gripped you recently? Um, regardless of whether or not you've been pursuing them purposefully or not. Some of the ideas that have gripped me in terms of what I've been pursuing personally and then, or intentionally, and then some, you know, what has gripped me um, more through, you know, through my, my hiker's path. Mm. Um, I would say, so as I, uh, I'm just going to be told, totally um, open. So, so, so as I've been looking for jobs, um, I've been selectively recruiting, aggressively recruiting, being very focused on what, what I want. And and half of my opportunities, I recently realized, somehow relate to the blockchain. Whether that's Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, NFTs, DApps, DAOs, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and I don't need to get into the full technical details of this, but in many ways, I feel like this entire movement expresses a lot about our current society. Um, clearly, it's a technologically evolving society and evolving faster than it's ever been before. It's, it's the growth of technology is happening exponentially, literally exponentially, as, as a basis of what happened in the prior year. And at the same time, there's growing inequalities to these gains. Um, hmm. You can see that in the United States. You can see that in China. You can see that comparing the developed world to the developing world. And so while things are objectively getting better in many ways, and while the stock market is at an all-time high, um, you know, the, our access to cheap food and, you know, boxes showing up on our door 24 hours after we order it, you know, in, in many ways we're living in this gilded age of consumerism, certainly in the developed world. But at the same time, those, uh, there's a lot of hardship and struggle that comes with it. There's a lot of job displacement. There's a lot of broken families. Um, there's a lot of people who feel like they've missed out on this rising tide. And in, and in many ways, I feel like the enthusiasm behind all things crypto is at both a sense of optimism for things to improve and opportunities to gain wealth. Um, at the same time, I think it's also a pessimism about the way things have been going. And uh, so I'll pause there once again. We, we could go deeper into that. But I, that, that's an idea that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, and many strings to pull there. And then in terms of an idea that has gripped me um, on my hiker's journey, more kind of introspectively, I would just say it's how... Um, Every person has their has highs and lows, and we we all are the same in that way. But we also are all unique. And um, some people ride high, some people tend low, some people swing from pole to pole, and uh, and 
we're all, you know, we, we all inherently see the world through our own lens. And um, in some ways, we're limited to that lens. And inherently, that lens is limiting. It's limited, it's distorted. And it's, uh, I recognizing that we're all the same, we're all human, we're all conscious, we all have emotion, we all have hopes and desires, we all have questions that are unanswered. Um, there is so much similar to us, but at the same time, the mental state of each one of us is different. And our neurochemistry works differently. And, uh, and I'm just trying to uh, become ever more empathetic to um, what's going on within each of us. Hmm. Which one? Okay. Can I pick up on the first one? I, I want to return to empathy, but I want to go back first to growth. Yeah, this is your podcast. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, captain, my captain. Sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm flattered. <laughs> I, I got Johnny leaves of grass. Um, maybe coming up on six or seven years ago. <laughs> Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman. Oh, Captain, my captain. Okay. Oh, yes, yes. I didn't know the Palmyra's reference. Yeah, I just saw the quote by Whitman. <laughs> you, you, brought, you brought a knife to a gunfight. <laughs> I, can't, I can't read, Kevin. You know that. <laughs> um, okay. Just taking some notes here. Yeah, please. Some, ho some host I am. <laughs> I got my notebook here, too. Okay. Uh, first, this, this question of technological growth. I, I know that, or growth perhaps in general, I, I know that it's not the case, but it's, it's very easy in a moment of time to feel as if technological growth is, is determined and in some ways over-determined, uh, sort of determined with a capital D, like just going to happen. Um, although, of course, right, like Peter Thiel, Musk, they're going to say that that rate of growth is not guaranteed, uh, and maybe not even that growth is guaranteed at all. Um, but but still, it feels at moments like this that things are going to develop. It seemed, you know, obviously we did have this yesterday, but it seemed as if nobody knew a few years ago about crypto, and you know it was here, but now suddenly it's it's very here, and everybody knows about it, or more and more people every day are hearing about it. Um, Versus, and, and you and I have, have touched on this a few different times, I'm sure, versus sort of a moral and ethical uh, or like a collective wisdom growth seemingly being far from determined. Even at times it feels like um, that's almost determined to be complacent. Um Do, do you think, though, we're talking about things perhaps that our parents' generation weren't talking about, they're talk, they were talking about things that their parents' generation weren't talking about, do you think that moral growth is determined, even if that rate of growth is slower than we would want, and obviously much slower than technological growth? Great question, Kevin. I, uh, I'll get to, to moral growth. First, I'll go to technological growth. Um, 
you, you say that it sometimes feels determined. I, I would then ask, determined by what? It's a good question. You know, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, yeah, like, like what, what is driving, like, what, what is inherently going to drive that if, if it is determined? And I actually think, I think the reason why technological growth feels determined is because it's continued, because it's accelerated, and, and many people have not been involved in it directly. So when something is growing outside your control and you can, you can look upon it and then you can experience it as it becomes more commercialized, given that you're, you weren't participating in it, it can feel determined. And I actually think that's probably lends some insight to the, the moral growth as well, because technological growth is not determined. If, if the engineers stopped working on, on those projects, those projects would not move forward. Um, in fact, knowledge would recess and decline almost assuredly. Um, so I don't think technological growth is determined, and I don't think moral growth is determined either. <laughs> I think in both cases, it's a matter of people having the will to to make progress. And in the case of technological growth, I think it's, you know, there's an inherent human drive to make things easier. You know, whether that's you want a sharper spear or you want a faster car. Um, you know, I, I, there's, there's, there's something, you know, subtle. Like humans are badass, hard, hardworking, tough, but also we're kind of lazy. And uh, <laughs> and you, you layer in those factors onto capitalistic market forces. Um, and then you will see technological growth, specifically in the areas that are commercial. Um, you know, DARPA and, you know, like m many technologies have come through government programs that actually worked themselves first, uh, intended for commercial purposes. They were more meant for say military purposes, but nevertheless, um, commercial interests in a market-based economy drive progress forward. And that's something that I, I, you know, from being a, a, uh, working in, in startups myself, I, I, and thinking about other businesses, I, I, I understand those impulses. Um, but it's ultimately about people working towards solving a problem and having the incentive to do so. And I think moral growth works the same way. Um, but in many ways, it's a, this is kind of back to the internal versus external. Like technology is external to us. It's the way we use the world um, and manipulate the world to create tools and technology to enhance our living. And the moral realm is inherently within. Sure, it's about the way we interact with each other, but ultimately it's about who we are as a people, about our character. And moral growth is uh, any internal growth is complex because people are inherently based in their based in their society, based on their in their culture, based on the language they learn. You know, like I mean. We're having this conversation in English as two Americans, you know, in the 21st century, we're inherently shaped by our context and, and all the subtle and, and uh, significant actions that have occurred through our lives. Um, and we, we aren't isolated. We aren't, while we are individual beings, individual humans, we are not alone. We are all together in this symphony of society and uh and therefore morals um in some ways there's there's resistance to changing morals you know i, I think a lot of morality has been codified 
in religious texts. You know, I, I think for hundreds and thousands of years, the way human society passed down the most important wisdom was through religion. You know, religion served other functions, um, and there were good and bad things that came from religion. There, there still are good and bad things that come from religion, but m- morals were passed down th- through these stories. And in many ways, these stories are designed to be enduring. Um, you know, most religions I know have beliefs that cannot be challenged, and uh, and that gives them a sense of permanence. And uh, and therefore, morals end up being uh, protected. And I actually think that's very important. Um, crowds can be wise, and crowds can be mad. You know, we can start talking about crypto again. You know, all, all of this connects, but. Mm. Uh, but uh, given given the whims of of short termism, morals if they're not established in the foundation of society, um, can be discarded and changed for different morals. And uh, and so, in some ways, I think morals are more resilient, but also more powerful than technology. And I do think um, I know we've spoken about this in the past and and will many times forward. Um, I do think, given the rate of techno- technological change, given how um, our world is all now interconnected through globalization, through the internet, you know, through, our, through a, a geopolitical interdependence, um, and, and with ever greater technology, with, with weapons that, uh, that could... Uh, lead to catastrophic or existential setbacks for humans. Um, in, in some ways, it feels like we are changing paradigms um, along a gradual accelerating curve. And so I think the, the need for morals becomes self-evident, first within each of us. Uh, I, think this, I think this also kind of relates to mental health. You know, certainly the mental health within, and then say, look, this all connects, this is back to mental health. You know, the mental health of an individual, but also the mental health of society um, in aggregate. And I feel like, and this is, this is my opinion, but I, I feel like many of us feel that things aren't working as well as they could. And, um, and feel like we kind of need a new set of rules or systems or institutions, a new set of morals, perhaps most importantly. And, uh, you know, I, I think um, what is it? Chesterton's fence. If you find if you find a fence and you don't know why it's there, don't remove it until you know why it was originally put there. Right. I, I, you know, it's, I, I, I think that a sense of conservatism is actually critically important when you're talking about morals, perhaps more so than ever. Um, so, I think moral progress will become necessary, increasingly necessary, as society progresses. But I think um, that process needs to be collaborative. It needs to be thoughtful. It needs to be sober and compassionate. And uh, and it's a uh, it's 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 a great question. It's it's a great question that I've given a lot of thought to, and I continue to think about. We're never going to get through all these questions because I'm seeing five questions here. <laughs> you, you give me a platform to ramble. Yeah. 
I, I think I'll at least be all the better for it. Um, there's this interesting conflict that you pointed to where, with the Chesterton's fence idea, that a, a certain amount of conservatism is, I don't know if you use the word required or necessary, um, um, or perhaps like just wise in regards to um, promoting morals, sort of unearthing morals from our literary past or biblical past or religious past. Um, and, and yet at the same time, you said in many ways we feel like a new code of ethics is necessary, right? Um, we could revivify or attempt to go back and revivify some of those religious doctrines or religious uh, moral codes, and yet I think we find that many of them to, to haven't stood the test of time. Famously, the, the Ten Commandments were, I think, really actually like hundreds. <laughs> and, and I think I think if we went through them, we'd be like, well, I think we can eat shrimp and we don't have to wear these kinds of clothes, you know? Yeah. And I, and I think even those uh, things there, to, to your point with the Chesterton's fence, would turn a lot of people off from the whole task of going back and... and Revivify, revivifying those moral codes, even if only two or three or ten, fifteen out of a couple hundred things last. I'm, I'm surprised you're sticking with the word revivify. <laughs> Why is that? Because <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's a tough word I've never heard it before. I, I get means revived. <laughs> it's tough to say, tough to hear. <laughs> yeah. I'm just joking with you. But no, I'm, I'm trying to think about what other word I would use. No, you're, you're the English teacher. Keep going. Breathe life into. I like it. <laughs> um. Hmm. Okay. Uh, you mentioned the wisdom of crowds versus the madness of crowds, and this is something that we've talked a lot about before. Do you remember what where we might have landed on this question? I, I pointed out. I think I stole this from um, obviously some YouTube video <laughs> where uh, we're sort of of two traditions, right? Uh, this sort of democratic one that points to the wisdom of crowds. If you have a crowd, that consensus will have some wisdom to it. Um, in in some ways, you know, our society yeah. depends on that system. We also come from another tradition, the the biblical or Judeo Christian tradition, where you you're not going to find any story where the crowd is correct and it's all about the individual either being right and persecuted or being right and sort of just escaping persecution um do you remember where we might have landed or have you given any more thought to what that knowing that our our society sort of balances those two and and i think um not to anthropomorphize but like almost very brilliantly balances those two like we depend on mm-hmm. one occasionally um yielding to the wisdom of crowds but then also keeping the skepticism alive in us to that same wisdom uh have you given any more thought to where that point might be when the wisdom of crowds turns actually to the madness of crowds yeah yeah i do remember talking about this and, and uh kevin you asked great questions and uh there's no right answer to any of these. I, uh, I, I think where we settled um, or where we put a pin in it was thinking about uh, like long, long-term versus short-term 
crowds or like the the sentiments of crowds, whether they're in a, you know a contemplative long term um, uh, comp- comp- compassionate mindset, or whether it's a uh, more immediate short term need, and. Uh, and, and so that's kind of abstract, but effectively, like, I think the crowd should check the crowd. And, and what I mean by that is, and this, is this is just my opinion, but I think um, through the Enlightenment, since, since modern values have, have arisen, we have given uh, great emphasis to the notion of the individual. You know, whether, whether that's through democracy, whether that's through the market, um, it's uh, the, the notion of of the individual, and uh, and I, I think you know I hold firmly the, the belief that government should be um, ultimately controlled by those who are governed, um, and in, so in the sense of the crowd, you know, we could just talk about the entire crowd. The entire crowd should democratically, in my opinion, determine how they are governed. And I think that process should be deliberative, slow-moving, difficult to change. And one of the outcomes of that is not only how, you know, what are your laws or what are your mechanisms, but how does the crowd check itself? How does the crowd, how will the crowd now, you know, in our present sense, we're going to come up with mechanisms through which we're going to be able to to look at our own reflection in the future and say, are we being wise or are we being bad? And, uh, And so... I think this comes actually back to morals, you know, insofar as you could codify morals and whether that be 10 commandments or a bill of rights or any other document, but it it lays out uh, commonly agreed upon foundational premises, first principles. Um, I think those should be held to, to extremely high regard. And when there are moments when uh, the crowd is, um, potentially mad, I think the actions and desires of the crowd should be compared against their own predetermined morals. And insofar as there's deviation, I think that um, warrants immediate and severe attention. And, and maybe, it, maybe it means things have changed. Circumstances have changed, and uh, the old codified rules aren't accurate. Maybe there's some great injustice, or there's... Um, just, just different circumstances that require change. Um, but I think for the most part, you know, if you ha- if you have "Thou shalt not kill" and and "Love thy neighbor" and, and other and other values that uh, reflect those endearing, deeply human sentiments, um, if the crowd is acting mad, they'll be they'll be violating some of their own maxims. And I think that process, as abstract as that is, I think that that's a mechanism by which you can. Not only like a crowd can check itself in the present, but then also can perhaps course correct back onto their desired ideals. Interesting. You mentioned um, empathy. I love the phrase you use. We're all together in the symphony of society. Um, and there's this really interesting question for me. I'm not going to ask you to define empathy, but I do want you to maybe think aloud about how we're sort of at this catch-22 societally where we're asked to understand, but then also told in moments that we can't understand. How do you think about empathy, excuse me, in that context? 
can you can you elaborate? So so we're so empathy. I got that, but that we're asked to understand, but in a context where we can't understand who, who who's asking us to understand what. I, and why I, can't we understand? I think occasionally we we have a a relativistic overlay that says. Jim, you can't possibly understand my set of um, circumstances, my reality, my history, sure. whatever, whatever. And, and yet I still I, – I, I find myself yielding to that occasionally but then also feeling this deep desire to try to be as empathetic as possible and, and to try to understand despite occasionally that relativistic warning or overlay. So in this context, we're talking about the internal, you know, and I, I think it's, you know, I think there's also complex things in society that are difficult to understand or misunderstood. And then there's a sense of like elites should be empowered who, who are more informed and can pull the strings with all the complex of interest that come with that. But, but here, so here we're talking about the sense of the individual. And... I'll ramble around a little bit because I don't have a great answer. <laughs> but well, I, if I could steer you, actually, I think you. Yeah. And and you could tell me if this is a little too controversial, and I can test my uh, uh, abilities on audacity and try to cut this. Um, yeah. But you've you've talked before about really interestingly about race, and mm-hmm. and I think having sort of taught in different education. At educational contexts, yeah. um, the the question the question of race occasionally, in my experience, seems to be one where I'm being asked to understand, but then also being told I can't understand. Mm, sure. Okay. This this is good. Let me think about it for a second. I, I think the race is a good race is a good primer, but I feel like my sentiments on this transcend race. I think it applies to um, any characteristic of identity, or frankly, any characteristic of being an individual. I like Kevin. Like I will never know what is actually going on in your mind. Um, you know, I think we do a pretty good job of trying to exchange ideas with words, um, but I will never know what it's like to be you. Um, I will never know what it's like to be anyone else. Um, you know, frankly, I struggle at times to know what it's like to be myself. Um, <laughs> Jim, your audio just totally cut out. Can you hear me? Uh-oh, what happened? I cannot hear you. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, I don't know what happened there. Um, where, where, did, where did I get cut off? I was just rolling. <laughs> I don't know, but I but I realized in lieu of any audio how graceful your your gesticulations are. Oh wow! Well, could you imagine if I see. if I, you couldn't hear me and I, and I was just kind of motion? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I think the last thing I heard was race is a good primer, but your thoughts on this actually transcend race. You can't, um, you'll never know what it's like to be, oh, the last thing you said is you, you actually struggle to know what it's like to be yourself. You had to learn anybody else. Yeah, exactly. So that was a good place to get cut off. 
Uh, so that's where my thoughts cut off. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and and so, in some sense, we're we're all. Um, I I don't know what your internal state is like, and I don't know what anyone else's internal state state is like. And that's not even considering the difference. You know, do you have a different skin pigment than me? Do you have a different eye color than me? Do you speak a different language than me? Did you grow up in a different socioeconomic status? Did you grow up in a different family structure? Do you have siblings, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? Each of us are shaped by our genetics and by our environment. And uh, and each, so in that case, each one of us are uh, extremely distinct and different from one another. And so there, there's um, some inability to ever fully know what someone else is thinking or feeling. At the same time, we're tremendously similar. <laughs> you know, we're, we're all humans. We all operate the same way. We all have minds. Um, we all are conscious. We all have feelings. We all have the same fears. We all think about death. We all think about meaning and fail to come up with answers. Um, we all uh, have more aspirations than than we could ever accomplish, and we're also all lazy, you know, and 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 comfortable. And uh, and so I, I think there's. You know, and when it comes to our moral values, I don't care what your skin color is. I feel like, you know, if we actually sat down and said, you know, is this good or bad? Is this the way we want to interact with each other? I think we find agreement on 90% of the most important ideas. And uh, and so I, I think the paradox you bring up is a paradox, but I think both are true. I think um, people... Well, to say you need to understand me, I don't. I think that's a little too far. I think you can understand me. I think people can understand each other without deeply knowing all the facets of each other. And so, I think it comes to empathy uh, and looking into another person and recognizing uh, a sharedness within one another, a, a sameness in one another, and having that be the basis by which you engage. Jim, I'm going to go somewhere. <laughs> We're probably best not going. Let's go there. <laughs> um, and, and I'm only going to, I'm only going to dip into this a little bit just to, just to spare uh, my 12 friends and family who actually listen to this. 12 might be generous. Um, <laughs> I got a couple brothers. <laughs> I'm actually at the point where where the analytics. I, I don't have full access to the analytics because I don't have enough <laughs> data. You need double digit downloads before. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> I have a buddy in Australia who listened. I well, it took a lot of coaxing, but he finally listened to it. So now I can at least say I have an international audience. I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I stole that actually from my dad who is friends with the same person on Instagram and then has reminded me ever since that he has an international following. A, gl- a global following. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot. I've been re-watching this, uh, this old Bill Moyer. I, if it's not PBS, it's something like that. Okay. Uh, this old series on Joseph Campbell. Mm-hmm. Where he 
he yeah my my homie my second favorite jc exactly <laughs> maybe my first favorite <laughs> your call yeah. no offense yeah. to the other think it was maybe the last two years of his life and he walks around he's at the skywalker ranch i think in california and just it's just joseph campbell mm-hmm. <laughs> not technically in his prime because he's right before he dies but he's okay <laughs> he's in his intellectual prime as far as okay. i'm concerned and uh <laughs> i'm reading a book right now that he he wrote right before he died and he was really letting it all hang out it's 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 probably 90 pages and, and i have to i can read like a page and a half at a time it's rough. Um, yeah. No offense to that, JC. <laughs> but but there's this idea that he talks about where the uh, Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden <laughs> for you knew it was going here <laughs> for um, this whole thing is just an excuse for me to talk about the Bible. Um, Happy to ride along. Yeah, yeah. They get kicked out for famously eating the tree of good from the tree of good and evil mm-hmm. and and there's all sorts of like uh interesting interpretations of that and i, I like joseph campbell's because it's very psychological he's like he's like the tree of good and evil is essentially essentially represents um duality meaning good bad uh, good versus evil, black versus white, yes versus no, and yeah, true versus false. Right, duality as a concept. Yeah, and, and he he essentially says when the 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 Garden of Paradise, um, figuratively, is a place where there is no duality. Um, everything just is sort of both, right? And this will also maybe get cut, but if you've if you've ever is the is the garden. Both, or is it all good? It famously is all good, right? Yeah. <laughs> Paradise. Yeah, but, but without bad, there is. So you're saying without a without a, a dual counterpoint, it's just yeah. All. And yes. and okay. and I can I can um maintain everybody's reputation here and say that I read this <laughs> in Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception, where he describes the psychedelic experience. Yeah. And now I'm I'm paraphrasing Aldous Huxley. Yes. He he describes it as being a situation where if he takes enough, he doesn't everything's yes and no. <laughs> if he asks a question, is this good or bad, he finds that he he can't answer. <laughs> not because he not because he's crippled by the by the substance, but because he finds himself exploring the ways in which it is good, and then he finds himself also exploring the ways in which it's bad. And yeah. and it's after they eat from the tree of, of good and evil, that is duality in Campbell's interpretation, that they suddenly realize differences, that, you know, he's a man, Adam, and Eve's a woman, and then they get ashamed by that, and then they cover themselves. And there's this whole sort of fallout from, from realizing differences. Um, okay. Or even creating differences right because they were different and sure, yet there sure. there was no perception of that yeah. um that is the exit out of paradise the way to leave paradise is to is through duality 
yes, no, good, bad. Keep going. The way yeah. in to paradise, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and of course, I'll remind everyone that that's the Old Testament. <laughs> Fast forward. <laughs> yeah. Fast forward potentially hundreds, maybe thousands of years through all the deaths of all the prophets to the New Testament, um, the latest death of the latest prophet, who says that the way back into heaven or paradise, he uses those interchangeably, is, is through another tree. That's the tree he's nailed to. And that tree is to acknowledge consubstantiality with the Father. And I'm thinking a lot about this right now because I'm reading Ulysses and, and this I'm idea... Sorry, can, you, can you define constant... Con- <laughs> consubstantiality? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's like an extremely Catholic phrase. And, yeah. and uh, I don't, somebody I know would know this, but they always change the prayers... <laughs> If you, it's really funny. I, we were, we were just at, um, oh, where the hell was I? <laughs> I was somewhere. Oh, I was at a baptism. Um, where I sometimes find myself. Very Catholic thing to do, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and so, and so, I'm at this baptism, and it's, it's, um, and all these people who don't always go to church are there, and yeah. and sure. nobody would know that until <laughs> the priest. Does one of those call and responses, and you realize that eight or ten years ago the call and response changed, right? It used to be, um, "Peace be with you," right, that kind of thing, and everybody, yeah. "And peace be to you," right, or whatever. Yeah. Peace be with you, and and now it's like, "And also whatever." It's it's I forget. I now I'm showing my hand. Yeah. It has changed, and it's everybody okay, yeah. said something different, and I was like, oh, "Okay, <laughs> right." But one of the I forget which prayer maybe. Um, changed within the last 20 years and it changed from is one with the father or something like that to is consubstantial with the father and consubstantial Consubstantial. meaning of the same substance yes okay which gets really cool and the invitation for it to become kind of psychological is is, seems much more immediate to me right although (laughs) one with the father i think would be is there too um the way out of paradise is through duality the way yep. back into paradise is to acknowledge consubstantiality. That is to acknowledge or to actually see and believe that you are of the same substance as the Father, right? Which would be, you know, God in this interpretation would be everything. So it's like you are the, of the same substance as that chair. <laughs> you are of the same substance as the computer we're talking through. Uh, yep. You're actually of the same substance as the person you're talking to. And sort of the, you know, in the sort of Eastern traditions, this is the sign of acknowledgement, which is also our sign of sort of prayer, right? Yeah. That is to sort of identify the deity in the person that you're talking to. Um, and there's this really interesting talk about revivifying. <laughs> the, there, there is this reluctance, I think, in moments. Um, there's a proclivity when we talk about ecological disaster to talk about how we're all of one earth and how we're all of one race and how we're all of the same, you know, whatever. Yep. And yet, I think people would really resist, on the other hand, if we were to say we all, we're consubstantial 
you and I are made out of the same things. Um, we are much more alike than we are different, right? Cosmically. Um, mm-hmm. I forget what the initial thread was, but no, but keep going. but there's but there's something that relates to that when we think about. Well, well you, were, you current... were talking about duality, Adam and Eve, and then Jesus. By the way, which I think was like the best biblical lecture I've ever heard. So so that that was what kind of got us down this path about being consubstantial with God, and now you're saying all of humans or all of life is consubstantial, and we, and we bring that to the surface when talking about global issues, but most people would reject the notion that we all are the same. Yeah, and, and you see that rejection, I think, most often in, in the sort of racial conversation. Um, mm-hmm. You see it also in the, ge- the geopolitical sphere. Like if I were to be like, well, we in the Chinese, you know, we're consubstantial, right? People would just, that word alone would just put me on a shelf with all other crazy people whose ideas are excused. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just going to apologize to everybody for that. <laughs> is, 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 that a, is that a question? Is that a handover to me now? Do I respond to that? You, you certainly don't have to, but but I, I, I'm really interested in this idea of, of how we are like religion, the word religion means like religia, linking back. And if you think about one of the things you're linking back to is like our common sort of arrival on earth, <laughs> or, or, or our common arrival to existence. And I, I find in all these really old ideas, especially biblical, these interesting wisdoms and, and the consubstantiality idea is one of them, uh, which occasionally comes back into vogue but then out right because there's obviously a wisdom in saying how we're all very one and and yet as as quickly as that comes it's also sort of excused Mm -hmm. well i love i mean we 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 could talk a lot about the duality concepts um and even just what what was the objectives of the Old Testament? What were the objectives of the New Testament? What were the contexts in which they were written? Um, sticking on this consubstantial notion, I mean, I would agree most people would would uh, I don't know, reject might be too too firm. I mean, yeah, but I, I think on the surface, like immediate kind of not not accept um, the notion that we're all the same. But I I am a firm believer that we are. Um, so so in some sense, I think the crowd. Um, uh, has not doesn't doesn't always recognize um, our interconnectedness, our consubstantialness, consubstantiality, and uh, I mean, you could break it down from multiple levels. I mean, you you can think about. I mean, I like physics, you know, and, and if you like really break it down, we're all quarks, you know, like like we're all made up of the exact same quantum particles. Um, that are obeying the exact same rules in the exact same fields of our universe. And, uh, you know, even the distinction between me and this chair or this table um, or the air is all, in some sense, arbitrarily defined. And so so we are literally made of the same sub- substance. Um, like there is a literal truth, as best as our science can, can permit us, that we're all made of the same stuff. But because we are conscious and have this sense of self, we're inherently once again looking at the world through this lens, and and thinking about ourselves as something distinct and different from the outside. And 
I think it actually only takes, you know, like we, we can abstract up from physics to to physical reality, but, you know, what am I? I don't exist without the air. I don't exist without water. I don't exist without the earth beneath me. I don't exist without my my parents and friends and family and social connections. Like all, everything and all the the trivial events and 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 massive encounters that I've, that I've gone through my life, like all of that shapes me. Um, and so we're all part of this, uh, you know, I, I did like that word symphony. I, I've used that before, but I, I feel like there's just this um, infinite uh, interaction that's happening at all levels of abstraction, from the quantum to the cellular to the biological to the human to the uh, to the cosmic, and uh, and I, I think it's actually like a hubris or um, definitional self centeredness to to view us as different, and then to take that basis and say, yes, we're you know. We're all made of the same stuff. We're all humans. We're all built the same way. We all share the same emotions, but you have a different skin color than me, or you speak a different language than me. And then to to view another person as as the other, it's a it's a it's an extremely understandable situation. Um, humans evolved on Earth. Earth is a hardcore planet. Um, <laughs> everything eats each other. <laughs> That's what happens on our planet. Nature is nature. Nature is metal, and uh, and humans dominated. We we crush it. And the reason why we crush it is because we coordinate and communicate with each other. Language is our superpower. Even though humans are exceptionally weak, um, we have no attack, no defense. We're slow. Um, our skin can be punctured by even just blunt force, let alone anything sharp like. If you were picking a one-on-one battle, I would always pick the human to lose against most most creatures in the wild. But together, we've dominated this entire planet, and so we come from, you know, our evolutionary roots are one of combat. And even when you think about humans, um, where they were spreading across the globe, it was it was initially in tribal groups, you know, groups of around 150, and. Um, to encounter someone from another tribe was to encounter another that was that was akin to account- encountering a different species, um, and um, you know we didn't have the wealth or wisdom that we have today to even consider um, considering all of us or all of the world or all of the universe as one sameness. You know we, we didn't have the complexity or capacity to do that, and so. As we evolved from tribal to agrarian, family structures changed, societies changed, and uh, <clears throat> you know we went from kingdoms and feudalism to nation states, and the evolution continues. And so, in some sense, I feel like we're having a conversation that could only really be had in our modern era, or or more more realistically, it's been had in the past, but only in in the in the realm of uh, kind of the unachievable aspirations and the ideal. Um, and so I don't know how to land this plane, but <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 I think the idea of con substance is 
deeply, deeply true. But I think we have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years of, of evolution that have uh, preconditioned us to, to not accept that. And I'm hopeful and optimistic that more people will come to the belief that we are. Yeah, very good landing, and at the, the risk of putting us back in the air. <laughs> I, I, there's something like that, just quick, there's that quote, I think there's some quote where it's like, for the vast majority of human history, when another boat landed on your shore, it meant you were going to die. <laughs> right? They, they, either you were going to die or they were going to die. Right, and most of the time, it meant you were going to die. <laughs> they... they it, they're the ones with the boat. They're, they're, they probably have better technology. They have plenty of diseases. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I always think of you as a business-minded person, and so you're likely to think about what people need or want, product, market fit, those kinds of things. But then I also think of you as something as a, a, of a starch humanist. Combining those then, what do you think people really need, regardless of whether or not it's uh, profitable at first? What do you think most people are lacking that that might make their lives richer or more fulfilled um, if you could give them something? Just yeah. to imagine this, just the people around you, the, the every man in a sense, what do you think they need? Um, mm-hmm. Or another way of asking this question, what do you think the world needs more of? And this might take us back to empathy, but I'm interested to know if you go somewhere else with that. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I mean, like, a, like an easy push off the answer. Like, I, I feel like Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a very accurate representation of humans. And not that I can recall, but like effectively you have your, your, your survival needs, you know, you need food, water, shelter. That's at a foundation. If you don't have those, and unfortunately not everyone in the world has those, you know, there's people without clean water. There's people that are starving to death. There's people that are dying of uh, preventable diseases. Um, if you don't have that, that's what you need. Um, you know, pretty much everyone here in the developed world has those things. And then above that, there's the longing for relationships and social status and material well-being. And above that, there's ultimately self-actualization. And as, as someone in the developed world, you know, look at like, I think anyone that doesn't have clean water or food, like that's, that should be a priority. I think, I think, I think that's something that those people need, um, but I think the world needs, though, is more meaning. And uh, actually, I have a bunch of ideas, and you're, and you're getting them. You know, you're, you're just getting all, you know, a flow of ideas. <laughs> I feel like people lack meaning in their life. And I've been playing around with this phrase, standard of living. And because uh, there's a, um, and, and, and bifurcating it into a duality of sorts, <laughs> into a, uh, into a material, <laughs> I'm just teasing you. <laughs> a material standard of living and a moral standard of living. Mm. And your material standard of living is, is your wealth, your income, you know, your home, whatever that might be. If you have a car, your clothes, the the toys you buy for yourself, you know, uh, for your family as well. If you have a family, um, how often you eat out, how often you travel, like all of that is your material standard of living. Um. And um, in contrast to that, your moral standard of living is is the realm of the interior. It's the realm of good and bad. It's the realm of values. It's the realm of uh, the, the idea of should. 
you know, should implies an ought and an ought implies a value. And, uh, and it's about the relationships we form, the bonds we build, um, the joy we find in our life, the gratitude we find in our life, um, the purpose we, we define for ourselves. Um, and, and like a, at a very deep level, self-awareness. Um, and I, I feel like just again, market-based capitalism and inherent self-interest has done a tremendous job of developing technology and leading to unprecedented improvements in terms of our material standard of living, you know, and just, you know, since the industrial revolution, less than 200 years, it's, uh, it's transformed our society even a hundred years ago where, you know, today society is science fiction. I mean, frankly, a lot of science fiction novels that we admire took place before 2022. Like, you know, they were set in the future 50 years or a hundred years and we're now beyond that. You know, 1984 took place in 1984. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for example, it's 2022. Um, and so, in many senses, we have surpassed our dreams in terms of our material standard of living. It's not equally distributed across countries or across the globe. And, uh, but I, I think where we're lacking most is that, that moral standard of living. I feel like the society we're in uh, commoditizes people. Um, you know, in, in capitalism, labor is an input, something to be optimized. And, uh, and with no notion that there's a human soul within a person. And um, I think, you know, we, we've all grown up, you know, there's been generations of people who have grown up in, in this environment thinking about making money, climbing the ladder, buying more goods, displaying your relative wealth. And, you know, there's a lot of like sexual drivers for why, why that, why people want to, display status um and uh and that, i don't think those things are going to change but I, I feel like the emphasis on that has come to the detriment of our moral living and uh and i, and I actually think this is this is in part why mental mental illness is on the rise in our country um i think there's a decoherence from uh what is deeply human, you know, going, going back to talking about tribes, when you, when you were in a 150 person tribe, you knew every person in your tribe, every person knew you, like lying was not a strategy. You know, like if, if you lied, if people would find out like gossip, gossip served a function in, in those groups. And, uh, and you also knew like my survival was dependent on the tribe's survival and vice versa. And there was just this great inter interdependence within the tribe, but also with, the lands that they lived on there was a you know you, you might be hunting a buffalo but you'd say a prayer before before you attacked and knowing that you're eating the buffalo today but in time you will pass and you will become part of the earth and create grass that will feed the buffaloes in the future and there, there was this uh, synergy the circle of life most literally and uh, and our present society has far departed from those ideals. We now live, like, we're in a global society, you know. Here we're, we're having this conversation 3,000 miles apart and uh, and on on computing devices that connect every, literally every single human or, or soon to be every single human on, in this planet. And uh, <clears throat> so I feel like what the world needs is 
less material standard of living or a less emphasis on material standard of living and a greater moral standard of living. Hmm. I once was helping this kid, came to my office. I was so proud. He had been he had been sort of failing to do so many assignments in a row. And I, I sort of said, look, I need you to come to me when you struggle with an assignment. I know that I can, especially the sort of written and the literary assignments. I was like, I know that I can prime you in a way in the first 300, you know, whatever. In the first couple words, I can get you to read the rest of this article meaningfully. And he comes to me and he hands me this article. It was for a history class. It was, it was, the title was something like Seeing the Forest Through the Trees. And we talked about, you know, what that means and what that might mean and, and what that might mean for the content of the article. And he's like, look, I've tried to read this thing three times. And uh, it's about India. So I have no idea how this title is going to... And it ended up being... And I felt so bad for the kid because it was so complicated. But it was about India sort of being at the brink of a industrial revolution while being at the size of a country where if they have the same industrial revolution that we had, they will essentially damn the planet. <laughs> and you have first world powers sort of stepping in and saying, hey, look, that's not a good idea. <laughs> and India is like, you did it, though. And you look, you benefited from it. Um, so, so I, I wonder, while I agree with what you're saying, I wonder if, um, there's a certain vantage that we're coming from where we can say, now that we've achieved a certain material standing, let's now shift our focus towards moral where, you know, people elsewhere might be like, we're actually still climbing that ladder. And yeah, there might be second and third order effects that are detrimental, but, but we're going to grant primacy to our current uh, standard of living. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is uh, trying to solve problems at different levels of abstraction. You know, um, going through an industrial revolution may be what's best for India from the context of the nation state. It also might be a suboptimal path for what's good for the world as a whole. And, uh, and so in some sense, both positions are right. And, uh, and this is even true at the individual. What's, I mean, I think, I think this is, I think a lot of this starts at the individual level. You know, it's, it's like what's best for me might not be best for my neighbor or might not be best for my community or might not be best for my family or might not be best for my country. Interesting. There's a, there's a, 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 a self-interest, um, at one level of abstraction that might be against the interest at a higher level of abstraction. And, uh, and so for the way I, I like to think about problems at the extremes, I like to think about the individual. I mean, this, our conversation has probably highlighted that basically, but I like to think about the individual, the, like the internal, um, experience of each person. And then I like to think about everyone as a whole. And, and frankly, I think all the distinctions in between, whether you're saying, oh, this is a nation or this is an ethnicity, or this is a a fill-in-the-blank categorization that's effectively dividing the human species into subgroups. I think trying to problem-solve at those subgroup levels 
will almost by definition create conflicts with with even within that level. You know, if it's good for this state or this nation state, it's probably bad for this other nation state. There's always inherent trade-offs within. But I also think you're also then creating solutions that are there's no chance the solutions you create at that level are the best things for humanity as a whole. And so I think you need to problem solve at that level. And so, yes, like, I mean, even before we think about India going through its industrial revolution or, excuse me, industrializing, you know, like once again, there's, there's people without water and food. And, uh, and so there's even greater needs than, than, uh, than the incremental needs of, of India becoming more, more developed technologically. And, uh, and so I think these problems need to be discussed on, on a human-wide level. And so that might mean the world together saying, hey, you know, we're going to actually develop power plants in rural and rural and underdeveloped parts of the world, or we're going to develop clean power. And we're going to, you know, like there, there, there's, I don't, I don't need to get into, the, into specific solutions, but there's plenty of solutions to be made when you think about things above the nation state level. If, if you if you drop down to the nation state, it's, there's going to be inherent conflicts, and in which case there's going to be winners and losers. So there'll always be winners and losers, but um, you can maximize the amount of winners, or, or even you can maximize the amount of winnings and distribute them more fairly across all participants. Interesting. Do you follow that? I do. Very interesting. So I, I guess I'm I, I guess I'm suggesting for developing new problem solving capabilities that really aren't present today. Hmm. Jim, I'm just mindful of our time in relation to these questions. I'm not going to tell you what question number we're on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's a poem again by Robert Frost called Out Out. <laughs> question three we're on question four (laughs) (laughs) i'm just gonna stop responding to your questions i feel rude not doing that but this is great there's a poem again by robert frost called out out and it's a reference to the famous tomorrow and tomorrow speech from Macbeth, which i'm about to read for you (laughs) and the robert frost poem is this tragic poem about this kid who loses his hand in Vermont from this buzzsaw and he's just essentially the poem depicts his very final moments of life. Mm, he dies from the injury, like on the spot. Yeah, and the title is called Out Out and it's a reference okay. to this these lines from Macbeth. Macbeth, just to contextualize it, is told that his wife is dead and he says I, I could probably actually do this without looking. <laughs> <laughs> He says, she, she should have died hereafter. There would have been time for such a word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lit the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. That, that, that was Shakespeare or Frost? Shakespeare. Yeah, life's but a strong. life's but a walking. <laughs> this, guy, this guy's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Have you heard of him? It's actually me. 
Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player who struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Uh, the Faulkner illusion. Mm-hmm. Might sound familiar. And that line, out, out, brief, candle, that image of life being a candle sort of bright and warm and fragile to the wind, that kind of thing, it always reminds me when it comes up, and, and it came up for me recently in class, it always reminds me of your analogy of consciousness as light. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you mind just describing that? It's a really cool image, and then I have a follow-up question, which is also numbered, so if that makes you feel better, we'd be running through the list. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, happy to do that. I, uh, so, yeah, so, I, I, I could, I, I could add some thoughts to, as I got, I, I could talk more, but I'll, I'll, I'll cut, I'll cut it short. So, I mean, my idea about consciousness being light is a, is a visual analogy to think about, um, life and death. And, and so, so there's, you know, notions of religion and afterlife that are, that I'm going to gloss over here. Um, but before I was born, I, there was nothing from my perspective. There was infinite darkness. I don't remember it. It wasn't painful. It wasn't bad. It was just infinite nothingness. And then when I was born, my light turned on. My consciousness, my life is that light shining brightly through the infinite darkness and today my light shines and i do know though one day too soon my light will turn off death will arrive and once again i will fade into darkness and uh you know once again like i i could talk you know there's i'm going to skip over the notions of, of is there a heaven is there an after is there an afterlife is there a rebirth I, I don't believe in that, um, but I won't explain why now. <clears throat> and so there was infinite darkness before I was born, and then my light turned off. My light turned on. It's burning for some time, and then it then it'll eventually turn off. And from my perspective, that's it. So there's so there's darkness in infinite one direction. There's light, and then there's darkness thereafter. That's how I view my life and consciousness. And if that was the story alone, that would be a tragedy. But you see, my light is not alone. Kevin, your light is on too. And in fact, all around me are billions of lights turning on and off, progressing, propelling forward into the future. And so while my light may be finite, my light may be temporary, light itself can persist forever into the future. Light, life, consciousness, can always be part of this universe. And in my opinion, I think that gives, uh, I think that's a beautiful and profound realization where, um, you know, I, I think it, it helps to address, once again, the, the, the deepest questions which we struggled, we t- you know, talk about death, we talk about consciousness, we talk about meaning. And while my light is temporary and will one day be forgotten by all that remain while I'm alive, I can help to illuminate the path forward. Hmm. I promised I'd move into the next one. (laughs) 
And far from the nihilism that I think is inherent in Macbeth's speech, your image is, first of all, you're, you're, the first time you said it was beautiful, you're becoming more articulate. It almost sounds like rehearsed, like it's really poetic. Uh, I thought, I've thought about it multiple times. <laughs> it, it's really cool. I do like thinking about it too. Um, you, your image compared to, the, I think, the inherent nihilism in Macbeth's, right? Like, out, out, brief candle. Mm-hmm. Your image is, is almost inherently grateful and hopeful, at least in the way I hear it. Um, mm-hmm. Although it is incredibly sobering, there's there's something um, almost very stoic about it. Do you think that an objective stoic assessment of the world on that sort of existential or cosmic scale um, the same view I think you try to have do you think this risks tilting towards nihilism if sort of scaled up to the order of millions because I think that you and I our instinct would be to say that perhaps more people should if not operate this way constantly knowing this should at least just know at one time. And my thought is, you and I might have sat, if we were the writers of the Bible, and been like, this is going to be great. <laughs> this is going to be a hit. <laughs> this is going to be a hit. And we would have never been able to perceive the, the perversions that spawned from it. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, we don't have to imagine the perversions that might st- spawn from Stoicism or a sort of existential take on, do you, at the very least, do you think it could? there's a risk of it tilting towards nihilism? Yes, I, I, I think that risk exists. I, I think that risk always exists. <clears throat> not not even in the context of this my little my little visualization or religion. I think humans are always at the risk of falling into nihilism. Nihilism is is a lack of is failing to find meaning in anything, and um, meaning itself is a human concept, and. Um, and as such, meaning can only be answered by humans. Um, it, it ha- you know, meaning has to be found, has to be determined, has to, has to be chosen. And I feel like, um, once again, like the, these, the, 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 the concept of mortality, the concept of death, the concept of a finite life is, um, an inherent concept. The, the, to even contemplate your own mortality is an inherent consequence of being alive, of being conscious. It's like, it's it's a burden that comes with the most amazing gift there is. Mm. Like, with life comes death and the ability to foresee that. And the way religions in the past have, have addressed that is by saying, you'll live forever. Or, you know, or there is a heaven. There's an inde- there's an indefinite future available to you if you behave a certain way. Or there's a rebirth, and that you can you know while you may pass, you will be reborn. And all of those are very comforting ideas, and and I, I hope that they're true. Um, but I don't. Um, I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that they're true. I'm very open minded about what happens after we after we pass. Um, and <laughs> could you imagine if you died <laughs> and you woke up in a place like heaven could you imagine being like Kevin is going to be so pumped <laughs> <laughs> yeah honestly that's yeah it would be uh, like, Damn, this is amazing I, I, I would be like well I'd be 
I'd be excited for everyone else to arrive. Um, and everyone, and everyone who's there. Um, I, I hope that's the case. Um, <laughs> it's like the I, best I new year's Eve party that's ever existed. <laughs> new year's Eve parties are not fun. So <laughs> we'll pick a better holiday. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I think in the past religion have, have, um, calmed these fears and concerns by promising uh, immortality through compliance um, and and the, the the ability to reach immortality prevents nihilism or and, and, all, and all the beliefs and cultures and stories and traditions that, that wrap around that and um, you know changing that narrative saying actually, your life is finite. Um, risks removing the structures that provide people meaning, um, and 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 people falling into nihilism. So I do think that I think that's a major risk. But there's I think there's actually a, a safety net that we can fall into, and I actually think a far more stable ground than what we're standing on. And um, you know, you, you mentioned stoicism. I I think. Um, not, not, not. I, I, I very much like stoicism, but not to whole, wholly endorse it in terms of this context. But I think being objective, or as je- objective as we can be as subjective beings, um, seek to gain knowledge and understand the world and accept it for what it is, um, will allow us individually and collectively to cohere with reality. And when we can accept the facts as we best understand it we can then ask ourselves, how do we find meaning within this situation? And, um, you know, back, back to my story with the, the infinite lights going forward, you know, while your light may be temporary, light itself can persist forever. And in my, and, you know, th- this is what I believe. And uh, for me, that provides more meaning than anything that I could accomplish within my life, even with an infinite life. You know, if, my, if I never died or if I went to heaven, like, there's nothing I could do with my own life that would compare to what all life could do forever into the future. Question number six. <laughs> now we're cruising along. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a slow starter. <laughs> thinking this way about, I, I want to shift, thinking this way sort of cosmically or existentially or however you want to phrase it. I want to shift towards thinking about governance in relation to that cosmic timeline. I told you before that that Elon Musk fascinates me. I I think he somehow made what the Prius, that that sort of proto-electric car. Sure, the Toyota Prius, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think he he somehow made what the Prius was trying to do, what paper straws (laughs) were trying to do, right? Paper straws are obviously the correct ecological choice, and yet we hate them. I don't know. I think straw. We don't even need straws. Just drink out of the cup. <laughs> I sometimes like a straw. <laughs> I know that it's unnecessary. I, I, I take a radical stance. No <laughs> straws. <laughs> yeah. Gravity works fine. We put, we put somebody like you in charge. You're going to tell us not to take showers. It's <laughs> it's going to be a mess. <laughs> he he somehow t- tapped into the simpler angels of our nature in some way that that really impresses me. The simple 
angels of our nature being the ones that, that care about the latest tech and how fast a car can go from zero to 60 and whether or not it's like the hot thing. Definitely. <laughs> the, the, those kinds of things. He almost leveraged bad behavior, uh, being yep. materialistic and shallow, um, to incentivize good behavior. Do, do you think as we stare down larger and larger global challenges, ones that become increasingly existential in nature, I let you use the word, could have been days ago in our conversation where you said um, existential setbacks, right? <laughs> what an innocent little term that is. I love it. Yeah. Right. Um, do you think governments can afford to be transparent or do you think they'll have to become conspiratorial, strictly speaking, in the way Musk might have been or must have been, sort of sitting around with people being like, look, these are our goals. We're going to get there through through almost conspiratorial ends. Um, and, and to our benefit, I, I might add. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I, I'm going to tweak the phrasing of the two options, but I would say it's both. And uh, when you say conspiratorial, I, the way I would interpret it is that it's in honest recognition of human nature and who we are. And in that case, he was appealing to our desire for the, the next sexy, cool gadget for social status, for sexual signaling, and, uh, and utilized those uh, fundamental human drivers to create a technological and societal movement that was for the betterment of, of, a, of humanity for the globe. Every auto manufacturer is now converting to electric. Like he, he, was, he like started a shift. It, but it was only possible based on his recognition of reality. And so I think any changes, any governance um, that we have must recognize that. So I don't, but, but I don't think it needs to be conspiratorial. Um, or if I want to be the, uh, if I want to hang on to that word as much as possible, I, I think it has to be a open, transparent conspiracy. I think it has to say, hey, in recognition of our self-interest, we're going to put in this policy or institution in place because humans acting in their own self-interest will produce these, you know, or predictably will produce these outcomes. Um, so I think government does need to be transparent. I think it does need to be democratic. I think it does need to be long-term focused and considering the interests of all that should, all that are being governed. Um, but I, and I think it has to do that in, in a cold, sober, um, dispassionate recognition of the facts of reality, including human nature. Um, it begs the question, what is human nature? And what, what about us is um, uh, unchanging? And what, what about us is uh, unchangeable? And actually, I'll, I'll, I'll use this opportunity to plug my own podcast called Subject to Change, where I explore the ideas I've discussed here and ideas that I've uh, the ideas I haven't discussed here, but uh, really asking the question, what is subject to change um, at the most fundamental level at the human, as well as all the way abstracting up to um, governance. So that, I'll just leave that as, as kind of like a, a little pin, but ultimately I think you need to be frank, you need to understand human nature, and you need to have transparency at the governance level as well.
Yes, and I think that if if I if someone were to ask Elon what he was accomplishing, I think he would talk about the sort of cosmic existential thing. Mm-hmm. That's my guess. I, I really I really have done no research to confirm that. But he leads, however, with the sort of shallower side. I don't think he says this is going to be the hot thing. He just like makes it the hot thing. Um, so I think sometimes I struggle with like, he is in some ways transparent insofar as he's willing to talk about it, but he's not transparent insofar as he's not going to lead with, Hey, these, this is what we're doing. He's like, he's leading with the sort of, um, uh, the thing that kind of hacks us. And, and in that way, I think it's conspiratorial. Um, although I agree with you that that's probably not the best word. And you could have challenged me and just been like, "That's it's just strategic, <laughs> right? Like leveraging human nature. Yeah, I mean, and, it's, and it's, it's more than just even human nature. I mean, he's, you know, now there's Teslas that started, I don't know, $40,000 or, or whatever. I mean, their first car was the Roadster, which was like $125,000. And which is even more of like, an extreme example of the vanity car. And, uh, but the reason why he did that is because when you're, when you're doing the low price cars, it's high volume production. And without going into details, producing cars is a difficult, difficult business. And, uh, and the roadsters, you can sell them for a lot more and produce fewer of them. So while you're, while your engineering and production capacities are limited, you build the lower, the lower volume, higher priced, higher margin car, you create that mimetic desire, and then from there you can introduce an eighty thousand dollar car, then a forty thousand dollar car, then a twenty thousand dollar car, and so there's many practical engineering and physical inputs that lead to his his strategic decisions, including human nature. Um, so yes, I, I think he absolutely is conservative, and I guess are you suggesting that he's not vocal about that strategy, at, at least in terms of the part of relying upon. Uh, you know, the, the certain aspects of human nature. Uh, I, I guess I am suggesting that, but with no moral valence, I'm not suggesting that he should, that he's being, I actually think it's impressive. Like, I think it's very cool. Um, and, and my, if I, there is a moral tinge to it, it's like, if that doesn't get pulled off as well, one, is it necessary going forward, sort of? And two, if it doesn't get pulled off as well, does it, is it resented? Does it seem conspiratorial, et cetera, et cetera? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's critically important that he's open with his long-term goals about, you know, getting us off of uh, carbon-based energy and onto sustainable renewable energy. That's that's his mission, as far as I can tell. And I, he seems pretty genuine. He's invested his life savings and his life's work into, into these businesses. I, I believe that's his genuine objective. And I think communicating that is critically important, not only in terms of like a sense of transparency and moral clarity, but also it's buy-in. You know, the people that bought the 125,000 roadster is because they bought into his vision. And, and not only that, because they, they wanted other people to know that they bought into his vision. So like, Communicating the end goal, the end goals, is essential. Um, is it essential to communicate all the mechanisms, the strategic decisions that lead to 
you know, there, there's like vision, strategy, execution, as I like to think about it. Like his vision is communicated clearly. I think that's essential. His strategy can be inferred as we're doing right now. You know, Elon's not here to, to rebut, but like I think he'd agree mostly what we're talking about. The execution, um, well, I guess we'll stop there. Execution is just getting it done. And, uh, but, so the strategy is implied, not explicitly spoken. I, uh, I, I don't see any moral concerns with the way he's doing it. I think if we were <clears throat> talking about things at the level of governance, I think um, more transparency is warranted. As I move to the last question, I would be remiss not to, to say that I'm heartbroken that you didn't give me enough credits to, to know that I would attempt to let you plug in in actually how i how i designed the last question oh you designed i mean i knew you would give me a chance if not just do it yourself but it it just my ideas seamlessly blended into it no no i know shame on you (laughs) i deserve shame (laughs) i happen perhaps not on this occasion i happen to know that you boxed in college yes and from what i can tell you gleaned a formula there you never boxed before and so while you can talk about this formula being possibly emergent from other things in my mind when i think about your biography i think about this being crucial because boxing was at that point perhaps the most strange skill you had learned and, and the formula that I think you gleaned there was effort plus competency equals, if not success, then opportunities at the least. Or getting punched in the face. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and effort, effort, effort plus competency equals, say oppor- it again? Opportun- if, not, if not success, then opportunities. Mm-hmm. Effort plus competence. Is that the end? I'm, I'm kind of taking over. Was there more to go or is that, is that the end of the question? There, there's more to go. <laughs> keep going, keep going. <laughs> You've always had an incredible drive, right? Hence the effort part of that equation. I'm really interested maybe as a sort of wrap up my questions and maybe possibly to let you plug your podcast. What skills um, have you been trying to learn recently? Well, I I love the question. I will say boxing is not the most strange skill. Humans humans throwing their fists is pretty natural. (laughs) And I'm being a little cute, but sure. There's there's some truth to it, um, and, 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 think, and, it, and it was a it was an entirely new thing for me. So, so yeah. you are correct. You're, you're you're more correct. You're more correct. I'm just joking around. Well, when I think about when I think about you in application to that sport, I think Jim would have loved. And and I play basketball with you, or I've seen you play basketball, and and you turn it into something of a boxing match. <laughs> and I know I know that like your instinct is to just like ratchet effort all the way up, but yeah. but it's at a certain point that's going to top out where you need to uh, you need to accompany that with skills so you can yeah, play re- <laughs> you can play really hard basketball you can play you can just charge into the ring but then you start to learn strategy and, and the competency starts to match and then you become more effective um, mm-hmm. so I know that I know this value that that effort is always going to be there I'm, I know instinctively that you were applying that drive to something at any given moment. I'm very interested to know like what set of competencies you're now applying that drive to. Hmm. Hmm. Great question. 
this is the one I'm, I'm least prepared to answer um, for some silly reason. But, huh. well, not really. But I, uh, I mean, frankly, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I, I'm, the truth is I, I'm really putting it forward into, I mean, you, this, this, I feel like this question was designed to set me up to plug my podcast. <laughs> it was. I was hoping that it would be natural enough to not even mention that you would give me the credit of assuming that we'd get to it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know any of these questions in advance. It 100% was meant for you to talk about your podcast. Yeah, so, so that, that's really... If you have another time. answer, actually, I don't care. <laughs> no, I, no, I don't have. A, I don't have a much better answer. I uh, I've been using my time to explore the landscape of ideas, and most important, and the most important ideas I can imagine. And Kevin, you've done a great job of asking questions, and I feel like we've we've touched on many of those topics here. And uh, and so while I uh, <clears throat> am trying to always improve in many ways. Um, both in, in terms of as a person and then in terms of hard skills and other competencies, I'm my, the majority of my effort is on thinking about the topics that we've discussed here and the way that's going to manifest itself most immediately and directly is in a podcast that I'm watching called Subject to Change. And uh, the first, um, I'm probably going to release, release a bulk of episodes um, as a package and that will be up soon um i'm i've been recording so i'm uh, quite excited to share these ideas um some of the ideas we've, we we've expanded upon here and then many more um in a in a form with even you know <laughs> there, there's some type of constraint on time that we that we've limited ourselves here and, and on that i can always release more episodes so i uh i would encourage people to if, if you're interested in the ideas we've discussed, to check out my podcast, Subject to Change, and um, actually, frankly, far more, um, yes, I, I would love if you listened, but far more important than listening, I would love if you gave me feedback and contributed to the conversation. I, uh, you know, we, we've, we've spoken high level about governance and humanity and in many ways, I consider myself merely a participant in the conversation and, uh, and with far more to learn than I have to contribute. Um, and so it's a journey that we're all on together. I, I couldn't think of a better line to end with. So again, Jim, I'm just going to thank you for agreeing time and time again to waste time with me. It's, it's never a waste. I'm going to cut this off and then it, unless you – just want to run away and scream no, if you stay on the line. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jim. <laughs>